You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes Isawa Takahata's The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which opens next Friday, November 21st. Next, we'll be discussing John Jost's Last Chance for a Slow Dance, which plays this Sunday, November 16th at 1 p.m. Finally, we'll be discussing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which plays this Saturday night, November 15th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. Filling in for Katherine Steinbach today, we have Patrick Brown, member of the Bijou Film Board and a regular guest on Banter. Welcome back, Pat. Kapla, which is Klingon for victory or (laughs) greetings. I think. Kapla to you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and Chong Min Yu, also a member of the Bijou Film Board. Welcome, Chong Min. Hello, everyone. And I am Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's executive director. I should also mention that all three of us are film studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film. The Tale of Princess Kaguya is a brand new film by Japanese filmmaker Isao Takahata. We've previously discussed Takahata's 1988 Grave of the Fireflies on Bijou Banter, and I'm looking forward to discussing this long-awaited feature film with you both today. Changmin, why don't you provide us with some, with some context before we do? Sure. A while ago on the radio, I already mentioned how influential Japanese animation films are in, are in their domestic market. Out of the top 10 highest-grossing films in Japan in 2013, Seven are animation films. Although the tale of Princess Kaguya is not one of them, but it has been deemed as one of the most important achievements from Studio Ghibli. The tale of Princess Kaguya is adapted from the tale of the Bamboo Cutter, one of the earliest literary works in Japan. The term tale here is translated from the Japanese term monogatari, an extended prose narrative tale comparable to the epic. So it also has this rich oral tradition. A lot of monogatalis retell historical events with fictionalized elements. Many films made by one of the most famous Japanese director, Kenji Midoguchi, are also called monogatalis. For example, the most famous one is Ugetsu Monogatari from 1953. And we also see some surrealistic elements in that film. In the the tale of Princess Kaguya, because the story is set in the 10th century, the word itself has not not been purged by rationality. People seem to live closer to spirits and divinities. Miracles are still possible. The story begins with the bamboo cutter finding a glowing bamboo shoot with a tiny thumb-sized princess inside. He brings the miniature princess back to his wife and they decided to raise her together. Later in the film, the bamboo color claims that the gold and shiny colorful fabrics he found in the bamboo grove are the proofs 
that the heaven wants to wants the couple to bring the princess to the capital, giving her a better education. This is also where the tragedy gradually sinks in. He wants to stay in the countryside to enjoy nature and its lush vibration of life. However, her father sees her as a gift, as a princess that symbolizes a possible social mobility for him and the whole family. Therefore, the princess herself only wants to escape from all the social constraints that are imposed on, upon her, returning to her childhood home. This being said, the narrative seems to me not the most important aspect of this film, for the challenge lies in that、uh, lies in how to find a new way to tell a well-known story in Japan. Different from the animation films from Studio Ghibli, this film is mostly drawn with watercolor pens, using charcoal to delineate the delicacy of beings and the world in the film. This film also stands as something very different to what we have seen from Pixar or Disney. The elasticity of animation figures cannot be used to save the world or people, like The Incredibles. Or cloud with a chance of meatballs. So, Leah and Pat, can you share some of your first thoughts toward this film? I, I guess I'll start.、Um, I really,、uh, like you say at the end here, I really like、uh, how this film is animated. It's it seems like it's done mostly,、um, you know, sort of traditional cell animation. It looks very、um, hand animated.、Um, you can see the sort of、uh, lines of of the charcoal. It has very heavy、um, lines. That it uses to define characters and things,、um, and and it has very sort of still backgrounds, you know, that,、uh, except for a few scenes when, you know, there's a there's a sort of flying scene, and there are a couple other scenes that simulate a sort of moving camera,、um, but other than that, the backgrounds tend to be very still,、um, uh, detail sort of like fades as as、uh, as things recede into the background. Um, so it's a very sort of、uh, painterly and, and static feeling, and and I, I think it's kind of、uh, it's kind of beautiful. It's great to just look at these、uh, sort of watercolor paintings that have、uh, moving moving figures in front of them.、Um, yeah,、huh. I would agree.、Um, and it felt very different visually, aesthetically than、uh, what I now associate with anime films, and also what. As you said, Changmi, what I associate with digital animation—the sort of softness,、uh, softness in the pastels that are used in this film—felt more like reading、uh, a children's book, which is always a very sort of pleasurable experience. It meant, made it a more nostalgic experience for me. I felt like I was sort of flipping through the pages of a, like a very carefully well done、uh, picture book for children, as opposed to watching an animated film. I think it's it's refreshing to see this kind of film now, and and to make a sort of arbitrary comparison, just because it's one of the only other animated films I watched this year,、um, the French film, or maybe it's a Belgian film,、uh, Ernest and Celestine,、mm-hmm. um, also has this、uh, this sort of、uh, I don't want to call it minimalist, but but a, a very sort of minimal、uh, approach to animation, where the the figures are very animated and lively, but the background tends to be a little more static and and、uh, and painterly. Even and I think it's you know one of the reasons that it might be so appealing to us is because、uh, contemporary you know sort of、uh, mainstream big budget 
Hollywood uh, animation um, is now able to be and is so so detailed and so busy all the time that it's kind of refreshing to see a movie that distinguishes itself by by taking the sort of opposite tack. Uh, I also want to add one thing that um, Studio Ghibli strictly rejects computer animation as a possible way of production. So they, so all of their animation films uh, have this hand-drawn quality. Oh, is that... I, so Spirited Away didn't have any computers? No. Man, I did not know that watching that. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. That's amazing. So in a sense, you could see they taught or they want to emphasize uh, this aspect of their animation films because it is special and it sort of make makes them different from any other animation film we're going to watch, actually. So, uh, Leah, you just mentioned that, oh, this animation film for you is made for children. So I want to talk about that because the story itself is very pessimistic. Like, it is nothing we would expect to um, to see from a, a film for, for children, actually. So let's talk about that a little bit because Isao Takahata seems to have his peculiar take on how the world functions, especially for children, actually. And for the brother and sister in The Grave of the Fireflies or Princess Kaguya in this film, the world itself is fatalistic. People cannot escape from social forces that keep dragging them back into the mud. So how do you feel about using animation as a medium to explore this motif? Well, first of all, you should know, Changmin, that I don't think that children's picture books are just for children. And I love picture books. So (laughs) that's part of what's going on here. Um, In terms of exploring darker themes, uh, pessimistic themes, fatalistic worlds uh, in the film, I think that's okay. I mean, I think that this is, it opens up possibilities um, to explore the darker sides of what what social mobility means for a family and family structure. I mean, that's kind of a, a very advanced theme that um, brings with it a lot of angst and anxiety in the film. And it's able to be explored uh, gently and almost non-judgmentally, if that's a possibility, through the animation. Is that making sense or resonating with your experience of the film, Pat? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything... Uh, I, I, I don't think that it's uh, a problem to, to deal with uh, maybe these heavier issues... Uh, through through animation and i and i think that um you know even some of the best children's books actually do deal with with uh the heavier stuff i mean i think about somebody like Maurice Sendak whose books um while they often have happy endings do talk about uh uh more serious things that might happen to a child or that happen in a child's life um so i don't think there's any reason why animation can or cannot talk about um, uh, the pro- the problems of social mobility in uh, medieval <laughs> Japan, I guess. <laughs> so um, let's 
uh, talk about talk more about um, the expressionistic um, style of this film because I want to uh, focus on that because in one of the most intense sequences in the film, we we do see that when Princess Kaguya uh, runs away from from he their uh, he, her home, we see we see a sort of like expressionistic dissipation of her figure into the air. So that's that's amazing to me because all the other things are pretty smooth um, in comparison with that particular sequence, right? Are you talking about the sequence that may or may not be a dream sequence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was beautifully done. And there's essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, there's sort of like two sequences in this movie that may or may not be dream sequences. And they're the two times where the animation style shifts. And it doesn't shift the same way each time. It shifts two different ways. There is her, this her sort of fleeing scene that becomes, as you're saying, more impressionist, or are you saying it's more expressionist? It becomes the shapes start to blur more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the other dream sequence is this is the sort of flying scene, which actually we get much more simulated camera movement, which is a really nice feeling at that moment in the film. Um, and I, it's, I think built up to be that sort of release, that sort of emotional release at that moment. Um, I loved both of those moments and I thought they were really well done and well used at that, at those I, points. I think this isn't directly related to the animation, but I think the lesson of those moments, uh, if we're thinking about this as a sort of uh, darkly didactic tale is that the past is past and there's no going home again and that you can only go home in, in fantasy and in dreams and it it is a pretty a pretty heavy thing i think to to contemplate in this movie that the two times she actually sort of runs away from this situation that uh uh is rather stifling uh i, that- I feel like animation does le- does have this strength of bridging different sequences ambiguously like yeah. you cannot really differentiate dream from reality, etc. So it, it, it blurs the distinction between them and it creates a, I don't know, surrealistic atmosphere. So um, let's talk about the differences between Japanese animation films and the American ones more because I want to uh, hear your comments on that because, I've, I mean, you, you guys grew up watching American animation films, right? Sort of. Yeah. No, I <laughs> yes. would say yes. I, I was going to make a joke, but yes. <laughs> uh, so, so comparing them to films that we grew up with or films now, because, I mean, those are pretty different. I remember being very affected by something like Bambi when I was quite young. And the animation style in that is much different than the types of films that are being made uh, by Disney today. Uh, it has those still backgrounds or those painterly qualities. Um with very sort of then the very expressive animals um, versus something like the two animated films I've seen this year are Frozen and the Lego movie. And we're just dealing with a whole a whole <laughs> new realm of, of possibilities with animation in both of those films. Um, so less contemplative. I mean, it's hard. I mean, those two, it's like hard to compare just the aesthetics because also just the narrative 
the resolution is so wildly different than something like Princess Kaguya. I don't know. I'm at a loss there to try and compare all those films. <laughs> I, th- I think what this movie lacks that an American movie would have is some sort of sidekick for Kaguya who would provide constant um, uh, comic relief. And so companionship. And I mean, she's oh, very, right, yeah. very isolated. That's a so, great point. So mm-hmm. there's there's no, right, Bambi has a thumper. There's no thumper. Bambi not only has thumper, Bambi also has flower. There are two. <laughs> The sort of Disney thing is to always have like two companion animals uh, for a long time, right? Oh, so the there's... skunk. I was like, I don't remember a talking flower in Bambi. Gotcha. <laughs> the skunk is named Flower. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> Bambi very well. Um, uh, so yeah, I think I think that's what this this movie is missing because I, I think that um, well, what this has sort of turned into, I think, in American animation, though I don't know if this is the reason it started that way, is that you have to have a, a certain amount of comic relief because the the parents are coming with the children and you need to have, you need to have uh, reasons that the parents will not get bored. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, This is my sort of cynical take on American animation. And so something like Shrek is sort of like just full of, of, you know, sometimes rather body humor uh, uh, so that parents don't get bored. Uh, and so you have characters like, you know, Eddie Murphy's donkey, uh, who's, who's there basically, I mean, the kids like the donkey, but the, but the donkey's basically there for the, for the parents. Right. I feel um, like that started with Aladdin. Am I wrong in that assertion? Iago. Well, and just oh, the whole the character. Jo- oh, with the jokes. The jokes and the, yeah, that body humor that you're yeah. referring to. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's Aladdin. It's certainly somewhere around there, around that time. All right, guys, we need to wrap it up now. Uh, Again, The Tale of Princess Kaguya opens at Film Scene next Friday, November 21st. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Last Chance for a Slow Dance. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to go hiking in Patagonia, ride camels in Morocco, eat sushi in Japan, or learn how to surf in Australia? Stop wondering. Take the first step towards immersing yourself in another culture by visiting the Office for Study Abroad. During the resource room walk-in hours from 9 to 5, you can meet with a peer advisor to start exploring the opportunities that are waiting for you. The University of Iowa sponsors over 140 study abroad programs scattered across nearly every continent, ranging from one week to one year. You can meet general education, major and minor requirements, or earn elective credit towards graduation. You could even combine study abroad with an internship or work abroad after graduation. For more information, come visit the Office for Study Abroad Resource Room in the University Capital Center. That's in the Old Capitol Mall on the first floor next to Beat the Bookstore. Study abroad. Ten years from now, what will you be glad you did? Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Last Chance for a Slow Dance. Made in 1977 by independent filmmaker John Jost, Last Chance, which is chance spelled C-H-A-N-T-S, is a fiction film about a drifter named Tom Bates who travels across the dusty roads of Montana looking for work. The 90-minute film features only a handful of scenes shot in long, continuous takes 
that include Bates's interaction with a hitchhiker, several arguments with his wife, a one-night stand, and of course, the abrupt and disturbing event at the film's conclusion that I won't spoil here. In his review of the film, Jonathan Rosenbaum describes Bates as, quote, an embittered, misogynistic, lumpen proletarian, end quote. I wouldn't disagree, but I would add that Bates is also the American cowboy deconstructed for the satisfaction of postmodern sensibilities. Shot on grainy 16-millimeter celluloid and stripped of the accoutrement of Hollywood's dream factory, the character of the outlaw cowboy is revealed here for what he really is, a violent, sexist sociopath. Jost's aesthetic has been compared to later independent filmmakers, such as Jim Jarmusch, and international independent filmmakers, such as Hungarian director Bela Tarr. Watching Last Chance for a Slow Dance, I couldn't help but think of Chantal Ackerman's radical feminist films from the 70s, including Jean Dielman from 1975, Ayu He Shi from 1976, and News from Home from 1977. I'm curious to know, Pat and Changmin, what you make of this comparison between Jost and Ackerman. Is it reasonable to say that Jost has a feminist aesthetic? And and here's where I confess to not having ever actually watched any Chantal Ackerman, including Jean Dielman, which, which I have actually started and then gone. Well, I don't have three hours, and and then stopped. So I get the I get the Jim Jarmusch comparison. I even have seen one Baylatar film, and I get the Baylatar comparison. And I, I was sort of thinking of them while watching it, but I don't know Chantel Ackerman. I like that you elected to answer my question first. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, just to recuse myself uh, from, from answering it. Well, I feel like you can say John Just definitely has a radical, oh, I know, masculinity argument there in this film, right? I mean, it is very, very stripped down to to the basic needs of a man. Like, oh, this, this cowboy, all he wants to do is to drink, to have sex, uh, to be on the road. So it's like, it's very existential in that sense. So you could see how it can be a comparison with Chantal Ackerman's films because in Jenny Dillman, we also see all these daily uh, actions being repeated again and again and again. But in this film, I would say it is even, it is even more difficult to identify with our main protagonist, right? Because he is a bastard in essence. Like he he doesn't really uh, care for other people. And all he wants to do is to satisfy his needs in uh in the fattest ways. So I don't know. Yeah, that's true. I mean we do in Chantal Ackerman's films, even though there's a certain distanciation at play you do ultimately, I think most people get drawn into a certain type of identification with the main protagonist. 
Here, the point, I, I think, I'm pretty sure, is to never identify with the protagonist. I mean, Jost is very critical of this man. I mean, he's a terrible person, and we're at no point supposed to uh, empathize with him. And I guess the whole point is because in in mainstream genre films, the male protagonist is always the person you identify with, even when they're the anti-hero. And here, this is sort of pulling away the illusion of of that of that macho character that you would identify with, even though they're horrible here. It's, it's just impossible. He's terrible. It's not a good person. There's no, you're not meant to sort of find a way into his psyche. I think that's fair. Would you agree? Yeah. So commenting on this without reference to Chantel Ackerman, I, I would say that, <laughs> that this, this sort of aesthetic where he's like sort of refusing us the reverse shot and refusing any sort of like analytical editing of space, really. There's some there's some camera movement, um, but but usually you know most most of the scenes are are just one very long and stationary shot. Um, I, I think there is something um, you you could call that feminist because you could argue that the usual sort of uh, uh, conventions for for editing a scene and uh, splitting up space are all sort of usually centered around like the, the male ego at the center of the story. Um, uh, and uh, this is resisting doing that, not, not using those sort of conventions to make us identify with his look or his perspective on things. Um, uh, so yeah, you, you could, you could certainly see a, a sort of feminist politics in there. I think it's a, it's a resistant politics uh, in any case. I also feel this film is a good counterexample to all those existential masterpieces made in the 1970s, for example, Five Easy Pieces, mm-hmm. or I don't know, um, Two Lens Blacktop made by Mont Hellman. Like, so or probably even Easy Rider, which is also a road film. Yes, right? like they all have this uh, polished or glossy looks. And in this film, what we get is a dirty picture of a man's daily life. So I feel like uh, you could say this this film is an accusation of all these other films made in new Hollywood cinema period. Because although those films want to uh, depict uh, authentic American working class life, but they ultimately failed. I, I think, yeah, another thing I was thinking of, not because I, I think the connections to Jim Jarmusch and um, Belatar are, are stronger aesthetically, but I was also thinking of Vim Vendors because he's another person who at, at the same time as this film was making, he made a few road movies um, that really are just sort of like deconstructions of of the American road movie or the American myth of the road. Uh, movies like Alice in the Cities uh, and then a decade later, uh, Paris, Texas, right? These sort of road movies that are really about like the sort of sort of hollowness of, of that idea of American life. Um, uh, so that that's sort of uh, another thing I was thinking of in terms of the road movie. Just another male director. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I think, absolutely accurate. Uh, we should also talk about the name Bates. 
because it must surely be homage to cinema's most notorious psychopath, Norman Bates, from Hitchcock's 1960 classic Psycho. However, I associated this Bates more with Mary Heron's Patrick Bateman from the contemporary classic American Psycho from the year 2000. Any thoughts as to what has been a plaguing, what has been plaguing the American psyche for over 40 years that we revisit characters like Bates and Bateman over and over again? That that is, I think, a, <laughs> that is a difficult question. I don't know. If I, have, <laughs> I don't know if I if I have uh, an answer to that. I mean, Bates and Bateman. Uh, are we, we're talking about so Bates, Bates, and Bateman, right? Which so all of them. <laughs> you I, can pick one. Uh, I think there's a, this anxiety that that like. Uh, Underneath um, this sort of friendly mask of of uh, capitalism and American wholesomeness, there there is you know a psycho uh, uh, underneath that, and I and I, I think it's it's a, probably a, a justified anxiety. Um, it's anxiety about uh, repression and patriarchy and and what it does to people's psyche, um, and that's certainly what American. Uh, American Psycho is about, and I and I think it's what Psycho is about. Whether Hitchcock knew that it was directly about that or not, um, so so yeah, I, I think I don't know if this is something that we can get out of our system, uh, but <laughs> but it's something that I think we've been trying to get out of our system by making movies about it. Um, I don't know. I have to confess that I haven't seen American Psycho. What is going good. on in the studio today? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, compared to Psycho made by Hitchcock, I would say this film um, doesn't really provide any psychological or psychoanalytical explanation for the main character or our protagonist, right? Because we don't really know his motivation. All we see are his actions and so we have this um i know superficial or shallow um description of what he really is in the film but um we don't see like i mean we can we can only use um like different social forces or patriarchal oppression or whatever to explain his actions in the film right because there's no clear or distinct um, causality between one sequence and another. So, like, it's just, uh, it feels to me like a, a day in his life. But, like, uh, there's no, like, there's no, un- there's, there's, an- I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're onto something. I mean, I think the point that Hitchcock is clearly invested in a more Freudian analysis and we've got mothers all over the place in his films and, and Psycho as well. Whereas something like American Psycho, which is maybe why the Bateman character reminds me more of this Bates, of the Jost Bates, is because both of these films, both American Psycho and Last Chance, are seem to imply that some of this psychosis is derived from film culture itself, that this has been a problem, that we've built these um, glossy images of of men uh, and women, but of these types of men that is unsustainable and is actually psychotic at its root. So I think that that's, I think that's a good point. I also feel like it is impossible to piece 
a whole picture together for this film. At least you cannot pick, piece together a whole picture of our protagonist in this film. So I feel like that's, uh, that's why it has to be fragmentary. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're going to end our discussion there. John Jost. Uh, oh, and I should add that John Jost will be presenting Last Chance for a Slow Dance along with his 2013 film Coming to Terms this Sunday, November 16th, beginning at 1 p.m. at Film Scene. The screenings will be followed by a Q&A with the filmmaker. For more information about this event, please check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 24 degrees and overcast in Iowa City. Tonight, there's a chance of flurries with a low of 21. Tomorrow, uh, more chance of flurries with a high of only 29 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films, showing locally, at film scene. Let's move on to our third and final film, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I don't dare say anything about this film until our resident Trekkie speaks first. So, Pat, why don't you take the lead? So, it, it's hard for me to talk about uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, without unleashing the Trekkie within. Um, which, by the way, I, I stick to Trekkie. Uh, a lot of people prefer the term Trekker. Uh, I was almost going to ask you, like, is Trekkie acceptable? Trekkie, to me, it's acceptable, but some people do not do not find it. So, so okay, so yeah. because we're friends, <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never really understood why we had to switch to Trekker. Uh, anyway, uh, so I'm going to embrace my Trekkiness uh, and just uh, play that role here. So Star Trek, the television series, um, ran from 1966 through 1969. It's often touted as a groundbreaker in a few uh, sort of social areas. Uh, It featured television's first interracial kiss, and it had a Russian man and a Japanese man uh, and a black woman on the the bridge of its starship. Um, It also featured some truly uh, great sci-fi stories combined with a pulpy primary color aesthetic that made the show eminently watchable, uh, and it still is even 50 years later. To me, anyway. <laughs> After its cancellation, Star Trek became hugely popular in syndication. Plans were eventually hatched for a new li- live-action series. These plans took the form uh, first of the movie Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, released in 1979, and then eight years later, Star Trek The Next Generation. The Wrath of Khan was released in between in 1982, and while not quite what we now call a reboot, is maybe the model of how a f- film series can be successfully revitalized from the ground up. The film is essentially a sequel to the second season episode of Star Trek called Space Seed, in which Kirk strands the genetically enhanced madman Khan on an abandoned but verdant planet, uh, along with the rest of his crew, uh, and also uh, a member of the Enterprise crew, uh, a-, a woman has fallen in love with Khan and joins Khan on on the planet. Um, the planet has since died along with most of Khan's crew and Khan is not happy. Uh, for Kirk facing Khan again means facing not only the consequences of his youthful actions, but facing death in a way he never had to in his past read on the TV show. I think the movie works on a no- number of levels. The two main heroes, Kirk and Spock get plenty of fleshing out. Uh, I think it's a pretty tightly constructed story 
Uh, and it's also a, a reflexive commentary on the old TV show, uh, which we can talk about a bit if you like. Um, and like the TV show, I think there's plenty of unintentional camp value. Um, I love the way that Khan's crew uh, dresses and, and behaves. They look like a weird mix between Mad Max extras and the Warriors, if you've ever seen <laughs> The movie The Warriors. Um, and, and this actually, for me at least, makes uh, the film more, not, not less watchable. Um, so I'm interested to hear what the non-Trekkies in the room think about The Wrath of Khan. And, you know, be honest, I, I rarely get the chance to discuss this movie with people who don't already love it. Okay, it's my turn for a confession, Pat. Yeah. <laughs> I've never watched... Star Trek. That that is for that is certainly for anything me. except for part of an episode. I believe that you showed me a couple years ago. Yes, a taste of Armageddon. A taste of Armageddon, and I was compelled by that particular clip. Um, this film, however, was I couldn't help but think I'm pretty sure I would enjoy this more if I had watched the TV show because it's not a world that is. Uh, very tightly constructed or a plot that's very tightly constructed. <laughs> like, there's these things happen, like seemingly really important things to the narrative happen quickly and sometimes off screen, whereas things that are seem less important to me and to the narrative take a long time to happen on screen. Um, I don't want to be unfair to it, but I did feel like I was sort of walking through a brand new world that wasn't super easy for me to tap into. You just gave a totally opposite description of the film because Pat just said it is a tightly constructed yes, that's, that's story. True. That, that was a, that was pointed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I don't. I'm not sure what you're referring to. I, it's not that I didn't enjoy. It's not that I didn't enjoy watching it, but I really did have the feeling of like, wait, that was the whole story that they. I don't know. I, clearly, yeah. people love those characters, and that's why they want to see them on screen. It wasn't because of this super motivated plot. So we I, we did talk about it a little bit earlier in the week, and I thought about what you said, which is that it seems like it's set up really quickly and then the, the plot just sort of stops uh, midway through the movie. And I think that's kind of true. Um, you know, uh, Chekhov, uh, who's one of the characters in the original series, finds Khan. Khan steals Chekhov's ship. Uh, meanwhile, on Earth, Kirk is stuck in a training academy. He's not the captain of the starship anymore. But when things go wrong with this super secret Genesis project, he's sent out into space to go find out what happened with Genesis. And it turns out Khan is there. And then that's where the plot ends because uh, the rest of the movie is just a duel between Kirk and Khan. But I think I think a lot of things are set up in that, in that first act or two, which is about, um, uh, you know, the first time we see Kirk... Uh, it's after the Enterprise seems to have been destroyed and all the characters we love have died. And then Kirk strolls onto the, the bridge and the lights come on and it turns out it was just a simulation. And it, it was a simulation called the Kobayashi Maru. It's famous in Star Trek lore. <laughs> that you're, you're not meant to be able to solve. Um, and Kirk reveals that he is uh, the, the only cadet to have ever solved this uh, this test, even though you're not supposed to, it's supposed to teach captains how to deal with death. Um, and so he, he's, he 
solved this simulation or he solved this exam by cheating. He reprogrammed the computer simulation um, and and won when he wasn't supposed to. And so that's the, I mean, like it's it's a very overtly set up metaphor, but I think that's the metaphor that that is sort of going on throughout. And so what happens when the plot stops is that Kirk sort of continues to continually cheat to get ahead. He cheats uh, to lower the shields uh, and attack Khan because Khan doesn't know that he has the ability to do that. He cheats by communicating in code and and fooling Khan into thinking that he's weaker than he is. Um, and then eventually, at the end of the movie, Spock cheats, right? And that has, like, serious, serious consequences. So I think the movie is actually working out the, the things that it's set up um, which is that Kirk is finally, after 20 years of being this sort of brash and arrogant um, guy who can get anything done and not really suffer many consequences. It's also sort of like a commentary on the show, because on the show, the only people who died were people who didn't matter, the, the red shirts, right, the, the extras that you never <laughs> saw again. Um, but in, it, this, this is the movie saying that the movie is upping the stakes and also that Kirk is going to have to live with the consequences for the way that he behaves. Um, and so I think that although there's not really a lot of new information that's produced by this sort of extended duel of egos between Kirk and Khan, I, I do think that in terms of what it's doing with the characters, it is actually like a, a you know, to me, I think it, it works really well. And the end of this movie always, always gets me. It, the end did get me too. I will. I will say that that was like, oh, what? Wait, but yeah. Well, before this, I've only seen the newest reboot of the series, the two films. But I like your camp value point here because when I was watching this film, uh, I was really distracted by the man boobs of of Kang because yeah. So the, there's a rumor <laughs> that he wore a false chest. Um, that that's like a rubber chest, but <laughs> oh, it's, oh my god! <laughs> but it's actually it's actually not true. Ricardo Montalban was a was a bodybuilder, so even at the age of of sixty or whatever he was there, uh, that that was his real um, that was his real chest. Yeah, I mean it keeps popping out, so yeah. it's, it's hard to concentrate <laughs> on anything else. I was like, what? He's, wearing, he's wearing like an open cardigan, essentially. This like very muscular man yeah, has on yeah. this like yeah. 70s cardigan yeah 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 he uh he's he's pretty amusingly attired and and it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense that his whole crew seems to be men and women between the ages of 17 and 25 uh because they should be the same age as him unless they had another generation of children and then all of the first generation died or something. So like a lot of things about Khan are just kind of silly, especially because he is this, I mean, Montalban plays him with a lot of gusto, but he's very sort of a one dimensional caricature of a, of a villain. Um, and, and the way that he keeps quoting Moby Dick, uh, uh, you know, we see a copy of Moby Dick on the on the shelf in his crashed spaceship, and then he quotes Moby Dick. I think a couple times over the over the course of the film, and so like it, it becomes really campy that, that that the movie is sort of continually telling us he's a madman like Ahab. I will admit that those things are true. well and there are i mean there is something funny about the opening the film with the simulation because to me i was like oh this is going to be like either a dream sequence or a simulation scene and indeed it was a simulation scene 
but it just sort of points to the fact that like it doesn't actually look any different than when they're actually when they're supposed to be actually in battle and and they're they're falling out of their barca loungers that are their pilot's chairs you know and so there is like almost a little bit of meta commentary there, like look it it really does just look the same right i think it's supposed to be (laughs) so i think it's not supposed to look the same i think the opening is supposed to be a kind of joke about the tv show um, that that you know the TV show is famous for the the times when the starship would get attacked and they just shake the camera and everybody would fall out of their chairs. <laughs> often often people would go in different directions from each other and it it just did not make any sense. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that we're supposed to think that the later scenes of destruction do look realer than the simulation. But yeah, I, I think you're right. They. Do they ever talk about why they don't have seatbelts? Uh, I think that has been asked uh, so many times. I, I, I think the reason is that it wouldn't look cool. Uh, uh, there, there's a scene in one of the Star Trek. Safety is so stupid. <laughs> there's a scene in one of the Star Trek movies, one of the later next gen movies, where they, uh, they pilot the ship by joystick because I think they thought that that would look cool if they had like manual steering all of a sudden, and uh, yeah, stuff like that just just looks terrible. I don't know, but I I do have a question about this film. I mean, yeah, I mean, t- looking back to all those sci-fi films made in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, I always feel they are pretty fake. So uh, when you were a child when you when you when you were watching those TV series and films? Do you feel fake? Uh, no, not. I, I, you mean when when I was watching them when I was a, a child, or yes. when I'm watching them right? Yeah, when I was. I I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, my so my first encounter with the original series crew would have been with the movies and these sort of movie marathons that they that they used to have on TV. Um, and, and I don't remember thinking the effects were, were particularly bad, but of course I was used to the effects on Star Trek, the next generation, which was a TV show that was on around the same time. So the effects were even worse on the TV show. (laughs) Um, so no, I I don't think that, that often entered my mind, um, while watching it while, when I was a child and actually, you know, I, I think, um, some of the, uh, effects, uh, in Star Trek's two through four, which are sort of like the trilogy, they're all sort of one story. One happens after the other. Um, the effects get pretty good. Like the spaceship effects in two, three, and four, I I find I find as good as a lot of things around today. But maybe I am just unconsciously defensive of. That's Star so Trek. interesting because I I mean I'm a huge lover of the episodes uh, four, five, and six of. Um, Star Wars, and they meant a lot to me growing up. And it, to this day, they don't feel they don't they don't feel fake to me either. Right. I mean, maybe six does, but um, I don't know. I can still watch that episode for A New Hope, and I just feel like it's perfect. Really? So maybe there's just something <laughs> that happens to your brain. <laughs> I mean, I, I <laughs> when you're feel, a child and you're watching these worlds for the first time. I think there's an argument to be made that that some of these practical effects um, and the the models that they used still still are in a lot of ways better than than CGI. 
Um, I, I think that's an argument to be to be made. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion start of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Hi, this is Ice-T. This is Graham Chapman. Hi, this is Sam Kennison. Hi, this is Kate Bush. Hello, I'm Sally Tins from the Nikons. Hi, this is Harlan Ellison, a world-famous author, snappy dresser, and terrific dancer. I'm Willa Dixon, and I'm listening to KRUI. 30 years of KRUI. Thanks for listening. And uh, we're listening to KRUI 897 FM, Iowa City, South Alternative, do it! Talk and roll! Ah! Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan... <laughs> so I want to I want to ask you guys a question, but first I want to share the the little piece of trivia that we were just discussing, which is that Harlan Ellison, who is on that KRUI ad you all just heard, uh, wrote one of the best episodes of Star Trek: The Original Series called "City on the Edge of Forever." It's on Netflix. So you should watch it. Um, so uh, I want to talk about sort of the the core MacGuffin in this film, which is the, the Genesis technology. Um, it's a technology that uh, is designed to terraform lifeless planets, that is, make it uh, a sort of, give it a liv- livable uh, habitat, uh, uh, a healthy ecosystem, so that the planet can be colonized, presumably. So it's a technology that's been developed in secret by the future, future military, the future Navy uh, Starfleet, um, and uh, so it's life creating on the one hand, but it's also potentially life destroying because if you deploy it on a planet that already has life, you'll basically hit the reset button um, and, and destroy what's already there. Um, so Star Trek often intentionally, sometimes less intentionally, um, allegorizes contemporary culture and politics. Uh, I'd like to know what you guys thought of the, uh, this genesis as an allegory of um, uh, maybe things that were going on in the 1980s, but also just technology um, uh, more broadly. I mean, is it uh, an allegory for nuclear energy in terms of like bomb versus nuclear energy? I mean, that's 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 the thing that occurs to me uh, that that um, in its ability to to both create and destroy, it would be connected to common things that would be said about nuclear technology in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and today. And, and today. I mean, I think we still have those conversations. Um, what was the question in, <laughs> in addition to that? <laughs> uh, do you, I, I feel like it might also be just an, an allegory for, for technology more, uh, more broadly, Technology as as the ability to to either create or destroy. Um, I'm also interested in in maybe why the if this is an allegory for nuclear power, uh, nuclear fission in some way, why the Klingons aren't in this movie? Because the Klingons are of course Star Trek stand-in for the Russians, um, and so we have this technology developed in secret. Cons after it. I mean, to me, this seems like. I, the Klingons will show up eventually in um, in the movies, but they they sort of hold off from from using the Klingons at first. Um, 
So it, it seems like it's a sort of um, uh, a very 80s, 80s thing of, of like the Russians seem like less of a threat here. And instead what's a threat is this sort of like lone madman who's, who's after uh, Starfleet's read the U.S.'s uh, nukes. Um, I would say that one of the premises for most of the sci-fi films uh, is the overpopulation of the Earth. So you could see that how how that plays out in a lot of sci-fi films, even Avatar or I know about all these um, planetary colon colonies. Actually, so it. it uh, I feel I feel like this film strikes strikes me as environmentally conscious because it is in the eighties and it is surprising to see some film uh, that tries to bring out all these issues in a sci fi film because I mean we we are going to see more and more films like this in the nineteen nineties uh, and in contemporary Hollywood cinema. So um, in that sense, I feel like this, although, I mean, we can interpret uh, the Genesis project as a metaphor for nuclear weapons, but it, it is also about um, the ability of our technology to create new environment, new life forms, and new uh, possibility for human to expand or to Think of new ways to solve different kind of environmental issues we are facing right now. So I don't know. That's interesting. I'm wondering when the big, you know, social environmental pro environmental movement started. Is that is that kind of right around this time um, when suddenly we were all singing about recycling and the, the, the big sort of watershed is the publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962. Two, I think. So it's pretty old by the uh, early yeah. 80s. Yeah, Earth Day is instituted um, by, uh, sorry, and I, I think it's actually, I heard on This American Life recently that it was instituted by Sarah Koenig's father. Anyway, uh, Earth Day is 70, 74, I want to say, 70, maybe 72. It's actually um, Richard Nixon who who is uh, who sort of like institutes uh, Earth Day. So environmental consciousness was already um, uh, overpopulation. I think was even more discussed in the late seventies than than it is now. Um, but uh, envir- environmental concerns were very much on people's minds. So I like that you're connecting it to that, especially because we know that Star Trek uh, wants to talk about environmental issues. Because two movies later, they travel back to 1980 San Francisco to save the whales um, <laughs> in Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. <laughs> well, and the, well, the interesting, pro- the problematic though of a machine that can build life where there was none is then you're you're ferreting in this idea that well, even if the Earth is in peril, mankind will some mankind's technology will somehow find a way to overcome, and we shouldn't. I mean, there is then that sense that well, we don't have to be that worried because you know humanity's going to outsmart nature uh, no matter what we do. Yeah. Yeah. There is something sort of dangerously mollifying about that idea that, um, if we just rely on technology and the way things are going, uh, eventually we will through colonizing other planets or making other planets colonizable by terraforming Venus, we will solve all of humanity's problems. We can use up all of the resources here, uh, 
and then and then move somewhere else to use up all of the resources there. Um, I'm not being cynical here, but technology is actually the promise of capitalism, right? Because ca- uh, technology can solve all of our problems: um, food, pollution. Um, I know different kinds of industrial revolution. Are you talking about in Star Trek or just definitively? Well, I, th- di- I think this is reflected <laughs> in Star Trek's view of, of the future. I think that's de- definitely true. That technology will unite mankind, end wars, and uh, lead to the peaceful colonization of the galaxy. Although you can you connected it to capitalism too, Chang Min, right? So I yeah. mean, are we? I don't know. This is is are the Klingons? You said Pat, they're uh, the Russians, they're the Soviets. They're, so they're, are they are they communist? <laughs> are they, they sharing all their? <laughs> they are actually. Star Trek can't decide whether Star Trek believes in capitalism overtly or not. They often say we've eliminated money. They certainly eliminated eliminated nations, uh, and they they often claim to have to not have money. But then sometimes it seems like Star Trek does operate uh, like the the United Federation of Planets does operate through a money economy. Well, there's certainly, I don't know if there's a money economy, but there's a black market economy, right? I mean, there's early (laughs) scenes where he's getting like black market booze and black market booze and, uh, rare, uh, antique glasses, right? Which, yeah. What was the deal with those glasses? Yeah. So that (laughs) he, he eventually in Star Trek four, he pawns them off in, uh, uh, in 1980 San Francisco because they need money because there's no money. But they were broken, weren't they? Uh, yeah, but they're from the 18th century, so they're valuable. So, yeah, it, that that uh, I I I think that's a that's a sort of endearing moment when Bones McCoy gives gives Kirk these glasses, but it doesn't really make any sense that Kirk has poor vision and he's allergic to the treatment for that in the 23rd century. So he just hasn't been fixed. So he must be the only person in the galaxy who has an allergy. To- Yeah. Okay. I didn't understand that whole allergy (laughs) thing because I thought, why is he using the glasses if glasses have been made obsolete by whatever technologies they invented? Yeah. He says he has an allergy to what I assume is like the gene therapy that fixes your eyes. Okay. okay. But it doesn't make any. Wouldn't wouldn't they have some sort of alternative like say glasses? Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he also wear those glasses. In one of the climax scenes in the film, right? So, yeah, it's great. And it makes him more intelligent? I don't I, know. Well, the movie, one of the themes of the movie is aging, right? So these Kirk characters we've been watching in repeats for, for 15 years at this point, for 16 years at this point, uh, or whatever. And, and they've sort of, in a way, stayed eternally youthful to us. But this is the movie where we acknowledge that these people are middle-aged and getting older, and they're going to have to start facing... Uh, death and deterioration uh, and their past coming back and haunting them. And I think that's why the movie works. So it's it's not just Kirk who's having to face death, it's spectators who are having to face the aging process of their favorite yeah. characters. Yeah, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's it. That's sweet. All right, well then let's end there. Um, once again, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Did I say it right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> Plays this Saturday night, November 15th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu.
If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and long-standing role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Pat, thanks so much for joining us today. Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And Chang Min, of course, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.